Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference where we help you live your discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio for the Bridge Builder today is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, thanks for listening, everyone. Hope that everyone's having a really blessed day. You can catch the Bridge Builder program right here each week at the same time. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Again, that's mncatholic.org slash podcast. Or find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we bring our faith into public life. We also answer your questions in our mailbag segment, and you can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org or contact us on social media. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't bring you practical ways that you can start laying the bricks that build the common good, brick by brick. In today's episode, we're discussing how the church's political engagement with totalitarianism and the ideologies of the 20th century helped shape its approach to political and social issues. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about the proposed legalization of recreational marijuana here in Minnesota. And stick around for The Bricklayer, where we discuss two opportunities where you can bring your prayer life into the Capitol. We're going to pray uh, for the intercession and ask the intercession of our Blessed Mother over our state and over our legislators as they close out their legislative session in May. Today we're speaking with Professor James Chapel. He's an assistant professor of history at Duke University and author of Catholic Modern, The Challenge of Totalitarianism and the Remaking of the Church, which was published by Harvard University Press in 2018. The book is described as an intellectual history of European Catholics between the 1920s and the 1960s. I think this has some really relevant uh, information and thought and experience that can inform our engagement with the times today. And so I've invited Dr. Chapel to join us. Dr. Chapel, welcome from North Carolina. Good to have you on The Bridge Builder. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You describe yourself as an intellectual historian, which is not an intellectual who is an historian. So what is that exactly? Sure. So, you know, every historian, you know, a lot, a lot happens in history. Nobody can study everything. Nobody can study military and gender and all these kinds of history. And so the kinds of things that I do, I ask myself, how do individuals in the past understand conceptually their own lives? And how do they conceptually understand the world around them? So it's looking more at texts, not just philosophy and theology, but texts, novels, magazines to try to try to tease out what are the animating ideas that are in these. And so it's it's kind of a study or a getting into how ideas shape history. Would that one be one way to frame it? I think that's right. And also the idea is that all of us, whether we think of ourselves as intellectuals or not, we all have ideas about what is a good life, what is a good society, and that these, I think, really fundamentally animate how we act in the world. So what got you interested in looking at uh, Catholic Church history and political engagement in the 20th century, especially in Europe? Yeah. Well, I'm not personally Catholic, I'm, uh, but I was, I was raised Lutheran, and Catholic You'd be welcome here in Minnesota, then. Yeah, okay, <laughs> I should come. Um, uh, I always thought that Catholics just seemed kind of, I don't know, more interesting, more profound, more intellectual. Maybe one of the few people who were drawn to Catholicism as a form of protest against my parents. And <laughs> There's um, more than a few of those. Are there? Okay. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I didn't know that. And as I got into Catholicism, it just struck me, like, wow, you know, we have, of course, the Catholic Church is powerful here, 
But in Europe, in the 20th century, it was exceptionally powerful. And I uncovered this moment. You know, everybody knows about World War II and the Holocaust, but what I didn't know is that after World War II, like, who picks up the pieces? It's the Catholics. Catholics come to power almost everywhere in Europe after World War II. Everywhere that's not communist, pretty much it's Catholics. And so I thought, wow, the way Catholics understand the world, somehow it was very powerful in 20th century Europe. And that got me interested in trying to understand how that happened. So your book, Catholic Modern, discusses how the Church changed her outlook on political and social affairs as a result of the challenge of totalitarianism uh, in that World War II period, a period around preceding and uh, following World War II. One could argue, you might say, that the Church had been confronting totalitarianism since 1789. It depends mm-hmm. on your perspective, but you note that something decisive changed in the 1930s. Tell us, you know, walk us through your thesis and the framework of your book in a nutshell. Sure. And so, and for those of you who have not had your, uh, not brushed up on your high school history, what he's referring to in 1789 is the French Revolution, which many Catholics were, you know, reasonably quite upset about because there have been anti-clerical elements of the French Revolution. So, basically, my argument in the book is that after the French Revolution, as you say, Catholics were let's say, very concerned about the state of Europe. They didn't believe that the state could be, could be free of the church, that, that they thought states needed church oversight. And they think this throughout the 19th century. The, kind of the big question in the book is, after World War II, Catholics don't really think that anymore. When Catholics are coming to power in Europe after World War II, they're not saying, oh my gosh, we need Catholic monarchies, right? They are now all of a sudden supporting democracy and religious rights for Protestants and Jews. This is a very different kind of Catholicism than you get after the French Revolution, where they're very much about, we need to return to church-state alliance and Catholic monarchy. The question of the book is sort of, how do we get from one to the other? Like, how do we get what looks like a modern kind of Catholicism? What we're so familiar with, right? A church that supports human rights for everybody, a church that supports religious liberty and tolerance. That's a relatively new phenomenon, though, and where did it come from? The argument of the book, what most people think is that it happened sort of gradually over time, like in the 19th century, early 20th century, that you can see this shift. I, what I argue in the book is that it happens actually a lot faster, and that as late as the 1920s, you can see this kind of very anti-modern kind of Catholicism, and that in response to fascism and communism in the 1930s, Catholics realize that that old solution is off the table. They can never have everything they want. They can never have all of society. And so they have to ask themselves a new question, which is, what can we have? How can we just have a little bit? How can we participate in a modern society without wanting to take it over? And so I think it's the 1930s where they really have to confront that for the first time. And then it's after, and it's after World War II where you can really see that's what animates them coming to power after the, after the war. This is really fascinating. We're speaking with Dr. James Chappell from Duke University. He is the author of Catholic Modern, The Church Confronting Totalitarianism in the 20th Century. That's from Harvard University Press. I want to probe on this point of uh, that, that period in the 1930s. One can read a lot of the literature in that period uh, where the Church basically is looking at the destruction of Europe after World War I, 
the global economic depression, and it seems that the literature, the the abundance of it says, aha, see, you tried to build this, the modern state on a house of sand, a house of cards, you abandoned the church-state alliance, you abandoned a society rooted in Catholic principles, and now look at all this devastation, and now we have these totalitarian ideologies of fascism and mm-hmm. communism trying to pick up the pieces. So the Pius XI writes Quadragesimo Anno in 1931 on the reconstruction of the social order, and that's still seems to be very much in the old mode of thinking. What what are your thoughts on that? Is that an accurate portrayal of the state of things? Yeah, I think, well, I think that's a very common portrayal, but I, what, what I found, and that's what I went to the sources thought, thinking I would find, but what I actually found was that what you described is very common in the 1920s. As of after World War I, that is how Catholics respond. Like, look, this is, what do you expect? What do you expect to happen? Europe became a slaughterhouse. Of course it did, because these are... France and Germany. These are states that abandoned the oversight of the Catholic Church. But when it comes to the Great Depression and the rise of of Nazism and the rise of Italian fascism, I think you see a somewhat different response. And the the big difference is that anti-communism comes to really define the Church and what the Church's major concern is. If in the 19th century what the Church is concerned about is modernity, in the 1930s what it's concerned about is communism. And so even if you look at Quadragesimo Anno, the um, 1931 papal encyclical you mentioned, there's a part in there that praises the fascist economics of Mussolini. And what's the argument there? Pius XI was under no delusion that Mussolini was friendly to the Church, that he was a great guy. But what he thought was, well, there are some things that we like about fascism, and it's much better than communism. And you can see a similar kind of logic at work in Germany in the 1930s. What I expected to find was a lot of Catholics who, because, you know, lots of Catholics do support Hitler. But if you look very closely, they're not saying, oh, it's because Hitler is a great Catholic. It's because this is the return of the medieval Catholic order. No, they know that. They know. They're not dumb. They see that Hitler and Nazism is not very Catholic friendly. But what do they say? They say, it's better than communism, so we can work with it. And then most importantly, what they say is, what Hitler will do is protect the family. And that's one of the major arguments of the book, is that in the 30s, Catholics decide, we don't need all of society, what we need is the family. And Mussolini and Hitler will protect the family, and the communists won't. And so that's why, in the end, even though they're not very Catholic, we don't love them, we're going to side with them. But picking up the pieces after World War II, it seems some lessons were learned, and that gets us to that post-war period where it seems that the Church is at the forefront of the things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Christian democracy, free peoples, limited government, and more of an embrace or a tolerance and engagement in a constructive way with the liberal order. What what changed? And Was it just the experience of brutal uh, totalitarian fascist regimes and having their lessons learned and being burned by that experience? Is it a desire to salvage evangelical credibility? What happened in that war period? Yeah, so and always the most provocative part of my book and the part that not everybody agrees with is that I think that the war is not that big of a change. I think the 1930s are a bigger change. And understand what I mean. So if you think about the logic of Catholics supporting Nazism, for instance, the logic was we can work with Protestants in order to support a non-Catholic state, so long as that state defends the family. 
That's sort of the logic of the Catholic appropriation of Nazism. And you can see quite a similar logic after World War II. After World War II, Catholics say, we can work with Protestants to support a non-Catholic state so long as it defends the family. It's a very different kind of state. It's a democratic state instead of a fascist state. But I think it's in the 30s where you first get that move of we can cooperate with other religious faiths. We're not trying to oppress other religious faiths. We'll cooperate with them in the, na- in the name of a non-Catholic state project. So I don't want to be, you know, I, it's, I don't want to overplay this hand. Of course, World War II changes a lot, especially when it comes to Catholic attitude towards the Jews and Catholic attitude towards democracy. But when you think about, I think, the big shift of sort of abandoning the dream of a fully Catholic society and saying we're going to look for partners where we can, I think that happens actually before the war. I think you're right about that. I'm not a historian, of course, but I think there's something to that in the sense that there were thinkers and people who saw that collaborating too closely with these regimes would ultimately harm the evangelical credibility of the church over Mm -hmm. the long haul. Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. And also, while in Europe, it largely takes the form of collaboration with fascism, you know, one thing I'm arguing is that in order to collaborate with fascism, with millions of Catholics did, they had to really reform their faith and make it more modern. But I'm not trying to say that the faith became fascist or anything like that. It was a strategy, because you can see a similar strategy at work in the United States, because Catholics joined the kind of Roosevelt coalition, which would have been unthinkable 30 years earlier. So I'm not trying to say that they all became fascist. What I'm trying to say is they made a decision to support non-Catholic political projects. In America, that takes the form of basically the New Deal. In Europe, it usually takes the form of fascist collaboration. Constructive engagement might be the uh, the, yeah, the relevant that's, that's, term. That's there. a nice way to put it. Mm-hmm. Who are the who are the decisive thinkers or people or players who help bring about this sort of change in outlook and engagement? So it goes back a little bit to the first question about how how to think about intellectual history. How do ideas change? How ideas change inside the Catholic Church? Traditionally, people have looked to popes. And one of the things that I found when I really started digging into sources is that I thought the popes were not as powerful as people had thought. I mean, we can, we can see this today, like how, how hard of a time Francis is having changing the culture of the Church. And it was even harder for previous popes who didn't have access to, you know, television or the Internet or anything like that, who, who, who connects with his Church through these encyclicals once, once every few months. I found that actually the laity had an enormously important role here. And so the main figures I looked at so are the, the ones that are most famous that you might have heard of are people like Dorothy Day and Jacques Maquetan, and a lot of people who you probably haven't heard of because they were not sort of famous theologians, but they lead Catholic trade unions or they lead Catholic youth groups, things like that. I think that it was less about a couple of titanic figures and more about sort of thousands of Catholics, tens of thousands of Catholics, confronting a new situation, writing. You know, Catholics have tons of, this is an example, tons of radio stations, tons of newspapers, tons of journals. And I think it was, over the years, thousands and thousands of writers and articles in journals like that, in radio stations like this, that actually led to a sea change inside the Church. So I think it was less that one of the popes sort of made a decision, and more that millions of Catholic laity did. So, in other words, you might say, through the uh, forged in the fire of experience and thinking about and wrestling about wrestling with what it means for the Church to engage these regimes and modernity, 
a whole new set of ideas emerged that then became sort of the the common modus operandi for the church after the war. I think that's right. I think this is a situation where if you put yourself in the position of, let's say, a Catholic trade union leader or a Catholic worker in the 1930s in Germany, you know, what are you going to do? You don't want you and your family to die. You don't want your church to be closed. But also you don't like Hitler, but what are you going to do? So you try to come up with some strategies to say, what's the best I can do here? How can I, how can I keep church doors open, protect some elements of Catholic faith, while also sort of defending my soul as best I can. So I think it's people like that faced with, you know, decisions that are to us unimaginable, at least for now, that make the decisive difference. Going to the post-war era, uh, where in in many ways, uh, especially after the fall of the Berlin Wall and communism, there's a rethinking of how successful the project of engaging with the liberal order, with democracy, with Western democracies, especially how successful the church has been breathing those sort of natural law principles or protecting the Mm -hmm. family into our culture today. And we're really living in a post-Christian culture, one might say, Mm -hmm. with the reemergence of a number of different ideologies, and among them, especially in the Catholic world, is uh, again a, a re-examination of integralism of the uh, mm-hmm. that pre-war position. People are saying, "Well, we weren't successful in constructively engaging the liberal order. Here we now we have we don't have prayer in schools, but we have drag queen story hour. What do we make of that? And maybe it's maybe this whole project was a failure. What what do you see in terms of? Um, uh, everything old is sort of new again, and uh, a, a rethinking of how all this played out. Yeah, it, it, you're right. It is really striking. And I think that what the historian would bring to the table here is, I think that a lot of what we take for granted about Catholicism, and the way it was for much of the 20th century, sort of basically liberal, supporting human rights, supporting civil rights for other faiths, a lot of that was generated by the Cold War, was generated by the specific pressures placed on the Church during the Cold War, and especially the imperative to fight communism at all costs. Because say what you will about, you know, the American state in the 1960s or whatever, it's not killing priests. It's not burning down churches. The the, the Church was obviously able to survive. And Catholics had a real fear that if communists won, that might not be the case anymore. And so I think that the Cold War really sort of constrains the way Catholics are able to act in the world. With the end of the Cold War, I think that this, this comes to the Church late, I think, because John Paul II remains Pope for so long, and he comes so directly out of the period I'm talking about, because anti-communism and family ethics are sort of at the, the core of his mission. So I think that since John Paul II, we're, what we're seeing is a kind of reemergence of the intellectual pluralism and some of the old debates that had been kind of put on hold during the Cold War, you can definitely see them reemerging now. Whereas where neither Pope Francis on the one hand nor the integralists on the other seem much interested in the sorts of Catholic engagement that I've been talking about that emerged in the 20th century. So in some ways we're returning to a kind of historical norm of Catholics really debating pretty strongly how do we engage with the liberal order? How do we engage with the modern world? which have been on hold for 70 or 80 years. Fast, absolutely fascinating. 
Professor Chapel, if you were to, uh, besides your book, of course, Catholic, I'll put in another plug for it, Catholic Modern, uh, Harvard University Press 2018, besides the book, you know, if, if there are Catholics out there who want to go back uh, and read some of those more seminal thinkers, uh, you mentioned Dorothy Day, Jacques Maritain, are there others, that, other places to go to read about this period of history, to read about some of these decisive events or people or ideas that you'd point people to? Yeah, let me think. I mean, there are a lot of sort of um, history books like mine, but I, I would say for for a Catholic who is thinking about the world, I would go back to some of these some of these thinkers. I, mean, I think that Jacques Maritain's works are just stunning, and I know you said you teach him sometimes. And what you can find in print, I would say go read it. I find it very inspiring. Even though I'm not a Catholic, I I don't know. I I, I feel brought to the altar when I when I read his book. <laughs> um, uh, Simone Weil, also from this period. Um, Dietrich von Hildebrand. So these kind of thinkers, most of them actually lay thinkers. Some of them with kind of, um, I mean, Makatan was a convert, Hildebrand was a convert. I think that people like that who weren't raised in the church but came to it and then saw with the wars kind of the worst that humanity had in them, I think that forged a really probing and interesting kind of Catholicism. Fascinating. Hildebrand is a forgotten thinker. Simone Weil, almost at the at the door of the church for sure uh, throughout mm-hmm. her life. We've had yeah. the we've had the blessing to speak with uh, Dr. James Chapel. He is an assistant professor of history at Duke University and the author of Catholic Modern: The Challenge of Totalitarianism and the Remaking of the Church. Harvard University Press, 2018. Dr. Chapel, thanks so much for joining us on the Bridge Builder today and uh, for a great discussion. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect the Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now we're going to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our producer, Kit Cross. Kit, what have you got for today? Yeah, so one of our listeners says he's heard a lot of discussion around legalizing recreational marijuana use in Minnesota and wants to know more about what the church's stance is on this and what he can do. Well, the Minnesota Catholic Conference has expressed opposition uh, to legislative leaders. Uh, there was a bill that was uh, put out in 2019. There is going to be, if uh, by the time our listeners hear this, probably a new bill this year creating a comprehensive regulatory framework for recreational marijuana. And in a nutshell, it allows people to possess it in the street, allows them to have multiple pounds of it in their house. Everyone can grow some in their house. Um, and the challenge is, is what impact will this have on the common good? Do we want to create another big tobacco? Um, people say, well, marijuana is less harmful in some instances than alcohol. Well, that's true in some cases and not true in others. The reality, though, is do we want to open the door and create more availability for something that we all know has uh, significant effects on mental health, uh, certainly in just general social engagement and work ethic, uh, for sure. You know, no one, no one disputes that for that select few out there who are wealthy enough to buy themselves out of the consequences of a prolonged marijuana habit, Hollywood stars, for example, it might not be the, uh, the end of the world if this were legalized, but that's not how laws are made because laws impact all of us. They don't just impact a small few. So 
legalizing the choices of a few harms the rest of us. We see this in uh, issues like gambling, assisted suicide, for example, where, again, affirming the choices or desires or wants of a few impacts the whole common good. And I think especially when we look at the marijuana question, what's going on in other states? We can see this already playing out in places like Colorado, where you've got sad connections between youth suicides and uh, the not a strong presence of marijuana in a, in a not insignificant portion uh, of those deaths when you do the autopsies, higher incidence of traffic, traffic accidents and impaired driving. So you're seeing in Minnesota already uh, people in the transportation sector uh, coming out against it, people in the mental health and addiction sector, places like Hazleton, Betty Ford, National Alliance uh, for Mental Illness. Those organizations are coming out against this as well because we're worried about people who are prone to addiction, substance abuse, mental illness. How is this going to affect them? How will this impact the poor and vulnerable? What are we going to be doing to our youth who get hooked on a life of marijuana? And what is that going to do to them in their future? So again, for the recreational pleasure of a very, the very few who can buy themselves out of the consequences, do we risk uh, endangering uh, the well-being of the rest of us in how that works? So it's not just something that's, uh, you know, you can do it, and if you don't like marijuana, well, then don't smoke it. It's a matter of how is this going to impact everybody else, whether it's from a traffic accident perspective or it's the harming of our youth the poor and vulnerable, but also those with uh, substance abuse problems, mental health, addic- mental health uh, addiction issues, et cetera, et cetera, because we know these are marijuana is a gateway drug as well. So very serious proposal. There's a lot of momentum around it because there's a lot of money to be made, of course. So that's something for Catholics to be monitoring. We uh, are partnering with other organizations like Smart Approaches to Marijuana Minnesota, and like I mentioned, uh, a number of other groups and across different sectors are opposing it. So stay tuned. Um, our column this month in the uh, Catholic newspapers around the state deals with that issue as well. And you can see the arguments laid out uh, in, the, in your local diocesan Catholic newspaper. Wonderful. Thanks for keeping us posted on that. And uh, yeah, listeners, definitely keep an ear to this issue. Um, we're always trying to help our listeners begin to build bridges between faith and public life. Um, try to become a better disciple in the public arena, even when it comes to politics. How can we start to bridge the gap? So each week we're going to give you tips in our bricklayer segment. Jason, what have you got this week for the bricklayer? Well, you make an important point, Kit, that politics is an aspect of missionary discipleship. It is evangelical in character. It's uh, a place where we work to bring the gospel into every corner of their life in the political world, the capital. As you all listening well know, these are the peripheries of our day where we need to bring the gospel more than ever. So we can't keep our light under a bushel and every aspect of our lives need to be permeated with the gospel and with missionaries who ground themselves in prayer and especially uh, asking Our Lady's protection and intercession over everything that happens in our state. Patron of the United States is Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception. Patroness of the Americas is Our Lady of Guadalupe, for example. So we can look to to Mary, uh, our mother, as a special protectress and ask her to cover us in her mantle. We're looking ahead to the start of May, so a couple dates to mark your calendars, which is the month of Mary, a special time of prayer. Um, First, I want to mention the May Day 
family rosary procession, which takes place the first Sunday of every May uh, between the Capitol. And the procession starts at the Capitol and goes to the cathedral. A little interesting background. In 1941, Archbishop John Gregory Murray of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis appointed Monsignor Richard Doherty as the director of Catholic Action. Catholic Action, for those of you who don't know, was a way in which a forum for laity to engage and permeate every aspect of the social order, including the political order, uh, with gospel principles. In 1947, Monsignor Doherty initiated a public demonstration of prayer at the cathedral in St. Paul in response to the rise of communism in Eastern Europe due to the message of Our Lady of Fatima, which had occurred 30 years earlier. Because the 1947 prayer service was so successful, Monsignor Doherty launched the Mayday Family Rosary Procession in 1948 for the same reason. Eventually, uh, 10 years later, the October 1958 Mayday Family Rosary Procession, that had 224,000 attendees. Let me say that number again. 224,000 attendees on the grounds of the state capitol praying the rosary. It is the largest gathering of people at the capitol in our state's history. So praying the rosary, asking Our Lady's intercession over our state at the capitol is a venerable tradition and continues to this day. On Sunday, May 3rd, Sunday, May 3rd, line up at the Capitol begins at 1.15 for the family rosary procession, and the procession begins at 2 p.m. Parishes are encouraged to bring banners to represent their communities. First communicants are invited to wear their first communion attire. This is a great way to bring our faith into public life. More information on the rosary procession can be found at minnesotarosaryprocession.org. But if you can't make it and want to come pray inside the Capitol, mark your calendar for Thursday, May 7th, National Day of Prayer, Join us in the Capitol Rotunda at 4.30 for a prayer service. We'll do a scriptural rosary with specific intentions for our legislators in our state. That is Thursday, May 7th, National Day of Prayer from 4.30 to 5. More details on that can be found at mncatholic.org. That's all the time we have for today, but remember you or your organization can become a sponsor of The Bridge Builder. If you're looking for opportunities to help bring the Catholic faith into public life and let listeners know you support that contact kit at show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org. Remember, you can catch up on past episodes through your favorite podcast app. Look for the Bridge Builder program and email your questions and comments to our mailbag segment. Again, that email is show at mncatholic.org. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, and for Kit Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening and have a blessed day.